Welcome to the College Commons Podcast, passionate perspectives from Judaism's leading thinkers, brought to you by HUC Connect, the Hebrew Union College's online platform for continuing education. I'm Joshua Holo, Dean of HUC's Skirball Campus and your host. Welcome to this episode of the College Commons Podcast and our conversation with author Dara Horn. Dara Horn is the award-winning author of five novels and the essay collection, People Love Dead Jews, the topic of our conversation today. She is the creator and host of the podcast, Adventures with Dead Jews, and she was named one of Granta Magazine's Best Young American Novelists, and she is a three-time winner of the National Jewish Book Award, among other honors. Horn received her doctorate in Yiddish and Hebrew literature from Harvard University, and she has taught these subjects at Sarah Lawrence College, Yeshiva University, and Harvard. Welcome, Dara Horn, to the College Commons podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'd like to start with two cases that you describe early in your book. In your introduction, you describe a lesson you learned from a very unnerving interaction in your youth, in which another young person cited Hitler as a source for her understanding of Jewish people. You conclude that many see Jews as, quote, people whose sole attribute was that they had been murdered and whose murders served a clear purpose, which was to teach us something. Jews were people who, for moral and educational purposes, were supposed to be dead, close quote. Then, in chapter one, you describe the case of an employee at the Anne Frank House in Amsterdam who was told to hide his kippah because the museum's goal was, quote unquote, neutrality. You describe, in other words, the way in which the Jewish experience is deemed valuable only insofar as it serves the needs of others. How much has the Jewish establishment itself promoted this problem in its efforts to universalize Jewish suffering, or at least the suffering of the Holocaust? Well, gosh, it's a big question. Um, and one I'm actually looking into more now than I do in the book. My next project that I'm start just embarking on now is about American Holocaust education. But what's interesting about that is in this research that I'm just starting to do, so I'm not an expert on this, I'm discovering that it's a little bit less driven by the community than I might have thought. I'm looking at sort of the sort of moments when Holocaust education became very sort of central to the community. It really corresponds to that same emergence in a non-Jewish community. Um, and here's what I mean by that. People often will trace it back to something like there was like an NBC miniseries about the Holocaust in 1978. People trace it to Elie Wiesel. Um, the reality is Elie Wiesel didn't sell that many copies of his book when he first wrote it. A lot of people trace it back to um, the attempted Nazi march in Skokie, Illinois in the 1970s, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, I mean, so that was that was prompted by the Nazi party. I mean, by the, the neo-Nazis. And that sort of forced the hand of a lot of survivors in this um, Jewish community in Skokie, Illinois. Um, it, in a sense, forced those people to come out of the woodwork in a way that they had been extremely re reluctant to do before. Another thing that I've, I've found in some of my research, and again, this isn't just my research, this is me reading work of other scholars, is you have a lot of um, actually non, mostly non-Jewish public school teachers in the late 1970s, early 80s, who are starting to think about the way they look at education and, and they're affected by something that's sort of becoming new at that period called affective learning. 
And, you know, they're looking for new ways of, of educating people. And a lot of them come to the story of the Holocaust as a way of introducing a kind of more emotional, like what we now call social emotional learning into their curricula. But these are really mostly non-Jewish teachers. And so I thought that was very surprising because I think that, you know, in the community, we have this thing like, oh, this is on us. You know, we built this Holocaust museums and things like that. But the reality is that those came from pressure from the outside. And what I mean by pressure from the outside, quite frankly, is Holocaust denial. I think that the Jewish community in the in the process of trying to fight this battle against honestly holocaust denial came upon this idea that there was this universal interest and there was a universal way of sharing this subject and that the, the in a sense the price of admission there was to universalize the subject mm-hmm. the reality is the that price of admission of sort of saying like oh we need to empathize with you know, Jewish suffering of the past because these were people that were just like you and me, people were doing that because they were responding to external pressure that was there from the non-Jewish world. I am only now myself starting to appreciate that more than I did in the past as I look into sort of like what actually spurred the community to place this outward emphasis on Holocaust education. From the perspective of of grappling and grasping anti-Semitism as a phenomenon, maybe the question is not the degree to which uh, the Jewish community had to pay the price of admission by universalizing their suffering, but rather maybe the question is how much more, if at all, do Jews have to do that in order to get their suffering recognized than do other communities that have compelling and legitimate stories of profound suffering. Again, this is something I've learned more about since I published this book than before I published this book. Um, And it's something I've learned about from my readers, my readers who are not Jewish, who are in the black community. I hear it from my readers who are in the native American community. Mm -hmm. Um, What I, what I've heard in responses to this book from readers in many other minority communities is basically this dynamic that I'm describing in the book is extraordinarily familiar to them. Mm-hmm. But here's the piece where it goes, it, it becomes a little bit different, I think. When you go to the um, you know, the National Museum of African American History and you, you know, get to the end of their exhibit about American slavery, let's say, you don't then walk into another exhibit that's about human sex trafficking and then walk into another exhibit about you know, people in sweatshops and then walk into another, you know, or, or, mm-hmm. or watch some short film that talks about, you know, when slavery is still happening today and here's what we should do against it. Mm-hmm. But what I've discovered is that is very much the norm in Holocaust education. And that to me is very interesting. And, and I may be wrong about this, but as far as I can tell, it's, you know, the Holocaust is, is, seems to be the only historical atrocity that is re- we're required in a sense to universalize it. What, what disturbs me about that, that process is that what you're doing in that process essentially is using Jews as a symbol. Right. And there's something dehumanizing about doing that. Yep. And it, the other, and the other thing I find troubling about it is, you know, often the, the, the messaging tends to be about how this was wrong because Jews are just like everyone else. Right. And this is what we often find in a lot of like 
anti-bigotry education is Mm -hmm. this message that's like, oh, see this group of people over here that you might be prejudiced against. You shouldn't be prejudiced against those people because they're just like you and me. They're just like everyone else. To me, the problem with this approach is that Jews spent 3,000 years not being like everyone else. And the other problem with it is that the Nazi project was not just about murdering 6 million Jews. It was about eradicating Jewish culture and Jewish civilization. And what disturbs me is that, in a sense, we are participating in that project of erasure when we are insisting that the way to get empathy from our neighbors is to claim that we are just like them. To me, this is like, you know, this isn't just a problem for the Jewish community. To me, this is a fatal flaw. It's sort of like the outer limit of living in a pluralistic society is that there's this idea that you can only have empathy for someone who's just like you and me, or that you only can have empathy for someone once you discover these commonalities between you. To me, I think that we should be encouraging curiosity about differences And yet instead, we treat that as the differences as the problem and the similarities as the thing that we're aspiring to. I mean, well, the problem is that that's something that Jews have been fighting against for thousands of years. Your book is organized by chapters that discuss groups of or individual dead Jews. And one of them is about the dead Jews, as it were, of Harbin, China. And you write about the appropriation, I suppose, for lack of a better word, in a way rendered very positive and very celebratory, if also fetishized, of this Jewish history by the contemporary Chinese community in Harbin. And I want to ask, is it possible that the caricatured, historically incidental Chinese fascination with the Jews that you found in Harbin differs fundamentally from the European Christian fascination in which the Jewish story, far from being historically incidental, actually impinges on the very DNA of European Christianity's own story. Um, I wish I could say that it's different. In my opinion, it's really not. The chapter that you're referring to is about the Jewish, the history of the Jewish community of a city in China called Harbin. This is a city that is in northeastern China, in a region traditionally called Manchuria. It's south of Siberia, north of North Korea, which is as awesome as it sounds. Um, (laughs) The city was largely built by Russian Jews through this bizarre historical circumstance where in 1896, the Russians got a concession from the Chinese uh, Chinese government to build a branch line of the Trans-Siberian Railroad deeper into China. They needed to build a town in this very underpopulated area. They chose a location for this town where there was there was nothing. It wasn't like there was a previous existing town there. Um, and they needed Russian-speaking entrepreneurs to build this town for them. And they're like, the problem is who the heck wants to move to Manchuria? And at that point, the Russian regime says, hello, Jews. Would you like to live without anti-Semitic restrictions but not have to be a bottom feeder in a New York City sweatshop? <laughs> Great, we have an option for you. You can move to Manchuria. And 20,000 Russian Jews moved to Manchuria and really built the entire infrastructure of the city. What then happens over the course of the early part of the 20th century is that there's successive regimes in Manchuria that make their lives more and more difficult um, until the last Jewish family is evacuated by the Israeli government in 1962. Today, there is one Jew in Harbin, like Harbin, like, like many 
Chinese cities that you may have never have heard of is actually larger than New York. It has 16 million people in it, 16 million people, one Jew. But what's interesting about this case is not that this is a place where Jews once lived and don't live there anymore, which unfortunately is not so unusual. What's interesting about this place is that about 15 years ago, the provincial government for this Chinese city decided to spend $30 million, which in this area of the world is an enormous amount of money. They decided to spend $30 million restoring Jewish heritage sites. They held a conference, which they called International Forum on, wait for it, economic cooperation between Harbin and the world's Jews. Mm-hmm. And then the mayor of Harbin gave a speech at this conference where he talked about how much we admire the Jews of the past, these esteemed Jews like J.P. Morgan and Nelson Rockefeller. In case you're wondering, neither of those people were Jewish, but you're starting to get the memo here. And if you didn't get Mm -hmm. the memo, he also then says, you know, the money of the world is in the pockets of the Jews. And this is the great testament to Jewish wisdom. I mean, this idea doesn't come from nowhere. But what is amazing about it here is that he's saying it out loud. And it's not just him. There's an enormous amount of documentation that this was their this was their economic development plan. We're going to invest in restoring these Jewish heritage sites, and then rich Jews will bring their magic Jewish money to Harbin. You know, and that's why, you know, to me, it was an interesting story to tell in the book because, you know, there's a much, you know, there's less extreme but equally sort of disturbing versions of this that are happening in a lot of different places in the world. Did you not encounter among Chinese and maybe many, many other people, as I often have, a raw, culturally acceptable, coarse, essentialism, which is also socially acceptable in those societies, whereby you can simply say, I don't know, Jews are just really good with money and, and, and um, Italians, they're just good cooks. And that's just the way it is. For, for these cultures that are far, far removed from the Jews, yes, they, the, the source of their determination that the Jews might be good with money does come from these deep, deep streams of European Christian anti-Semitism, Protocols of Elders of Zion, et cetera. However, fundamentally, their comfort with that kind of crude essentialization, negative and positive alike, is really just about their culture. And there's nothing intrinsically, what what you and I might call, at least colloquially, anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish, as opposed to the actual roots of anti-Semitism as lived in contemporary societies in Christendom, whereby it really is about stuff that gets to the heart of who they themselves are as Christians and coming to terms with the fact that that Christianity has to reckon with its Jewish connection. I know it's not intended to be a pass, but like, I think there's something patronizing about giving people a pass for this kind of thing. You know, it's not just that here they're celebrating this wonderful Russian Jewish community of the past and like, hooray, let's rebuild their cemetery and rebuild their synagogues and re, you know, reconstruct these buildings so that they'll come and give us their magic Jewish money. The Chinese government is also persecuting Chinese Jews. There is a Chinese Jewish community that's been there for a thousand years in a city called Kaifeng. You know, this is a community that dates to the Middle Ages. If you go there now, you won't meet any Jews. And if you went there 10 years ago, you often will find people saying they won't say they're Jews, they'll say they're descendants of Jews. Mm-hmm. It's not because, oh, we're not Jewish or something like that. The reason they're saying they're descendants of Jews is because it's illegal to be a Chinese Jew. Just like we all are are aware of what the Chinese government's doing with the Uyghurs. Mm -hmm. This culture has been 
absolutely cracked down upon and persecuted. Um, they've gone completely underground. I mean, it is like, it's like a Murano community and I'm not going to pretend that that's not happening. Um, you know, so that's, you know, I mean, this is sort of a larger problem with the Chinese communist party and it's not that different from what you had in the Soviet Union in terms of oppressing religious minorities. I will tell you that I had a conversation about this with Abe Foxman, former head of the ADL. Uh, he and I had this conversation a while ago. And um, during this conversation, I was talking about what I saw in Harbin. And one of the things I talked about was like the ridiculousness of some of these um, Jewish museums that have been created in Harbin. And one example I gave was this one museum that was a former synagogue that they've turned into a museum. And I'm just going to give you one example of an exhibit in this museum where you walk into a small room and they have like a life-size plaster sculpture of a man sitting at a desk in front of a typewriter. And there's a caption that says, real Jewish businessman in Harbin. And then you go to the next room and there's like two life-size plaster kids playing with blocks. And there's a caption, real Jewish children in Harbin. Mm-hmm. This is their museum. And so I mentioned this in this conversation with Abe Foxman and Abe Foxman, as it happened, had also been to Harbin because he had done some ADL delegation there years ago when they first opened this museum. And he said, yes, it's kitschy. And, you know, yes, like, you know, there's some elements of it that are, you know, playing on these stereotypes. But, you know, isn't it better than nothing? Like, how can you not be grateful for these people that they did this research and they reconstructed these museums? And I said to him, well, I don't know. Would you say to Native Americans, look, we're honoring your culture. We made these cigar store Indians for you. Oh, and look, we named our sports team after you. Look how we're honoring your heritage. In that context, would we say like, well, I guess it's better than nothing. No, we would say this is offensive and we can do better. And I think that there is something self-effacing in Jewish culture, which comes from really centuries of strategy on the part of Jewish community to accommodate, which makes us bend over backwards to give this kind of stuff the benefit of the doubt. I agree with that last statement. I I fear you've conflated me with the orientation with Abe Foxman. And there's not an iota of ease or easing or softening in my interpretation of the Chinese phenomenon whatsoever. There is difference in quality, uh, source, uh, understanding thereby how to tackle such things. Oh, uh, sure. Of course. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. And I'm also, um, I want to be clear, like Abe Foxman has done tremendous things for the Jewish community. Like, yeah, right, right. Yeah, right, yeah. Course, no, <laughs> yeah I, I mean, I, and he and that, I don't I mean, see eye to eye on everything, but I mean, yeah. Right, no, and I, there's no... I, I applaud his 40 years of work in this field. I mean, this is not... Yes. But right. what is interesting to me is that there is something that's that's very deep in the Jewish community so deep that we don't talk about it. We do have this urge to give people as many passes as possible and to give people the benefit of the doubt as much as we possibly can. And I've noticed this in publishing this book that often the readers who have pushed back on some of my arguments in this book, it isn't because they necessarily disagree with me it's because they don't want to say these things. And to me, that itself is really interesting. It is. And I've encountered it. And I know, I know whereof you speak. I tend to be more uh, hawkish on this, which is to say, if I'm right, then one would have to attend 
to the, we'll call it again, anti-Semitism of China or the Harbin case, for example, differently than one attends to European anti-Semitism? Well, I mean, it's less, much less important because, I mean, they don't have the people. My assessment is... It, it, Historical. Yeah. And and at its root, it has nothing to do with how many are affected. It's the principle of the thing. I'm a medievalist and that's got to color my way of looking at these things. But here's to not giving anyone a pass for being prejudiced and anti-Semitic or racist or any such thing. You know, people often comment on the title of my book. The nice way to say it is it's provocative. But the reality is my goal is to make people uncomfortable because one thing that I've noticed in 20 years of being a writer is that the uncomfortable moments are where the story is because that's when you're about to learn something that you weren't either ready or willing to learn before. And I, I really hated writing this book. (laughs) And I mean, it's sort of, I, I never, I didn't want to write this book. I mean, I really avoided this topic for a long time until I realized that my avoidance of it was also part of the problem. Mm. You're a very skilled and artful author. I did not experience unease. I, I experienced that, that, that emotion when you read something and you identify it and you want to jump into the book and, and tell the author, yeah, 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 that exactly, exactly. That's totally what I know. It was validating. It was very, very powerful for me to identify with it. So from the point of view of the perspective and the clarity and the articulation and the elegance that you bring to that perspective, I found it bracing. I will tell you that, you know, this, I feel like there's sort of another, a whole other book that has happened since the book came out which is responses I've gotten from readers, which has sort of also kind of changed my perspective on all of these things yet again. I spoke before about non-Jewish readers from other minority communities who have sort of, you know, identified with things in the book. I've been very, very heartened by the response from non-Jewish readers in general. What I've discovered is there, there are a whole lot of people with a lot of goodwill who really want to be, you know, what we now call good allies and a lot of them kind of just maybe don't know how. Um, so that's sort of, that's been very, that's been very encouraging. But I have to tell you, to me, one of the more depressing things about publishing this book has been the responses from Jewish readers. And in a sense, and and it is wonderful as a writer to have readers like you who appreciate my work. With this book, like, I got to be honest, like, I kind of wish people appreciated it a little less. And what I mean by that is I wrote this book as an intellectual exploration. This wasn't a book that I was writing like because of personal events in my life. There's some things, but very little. It's really, it's really like this was a problem that I noticed in my research. It's a problem I noticed as a writer, as a, as a scholar of literature. You know, I was exploring those problems in this sort of intellectual context what has been sort of, you know, really revelatory to me in a very upsetting way is the responses from Jewish readers. And when I say Jewish readers, I mean people really from all walks of life, like religious people, secular people, uh, old people, young people, people in the United States, people in other countries. They all write me the same message, which is I have felt uncomfortable my whole life and I never understood why. Your book articulated this for me. Thank you. And then they say, 
I never told anyone this, but, and then they tell me some like horrible degrading stories, things that have happened in their own life. And sometimes they say, can you help? Wow. And to me, that has been just like really devastating because like, for me, this was an intellectual problem. For my readers, this is like an emotional problem. And like, this is something very personal. I had no idea what my, these people were going through. Like, did you know how many people are getting pennies thrown at them in 21st century America? If I count myself, at least one. I mean. Like, holy crap, you too? Like, uh, like yeah. I, thought, I thought that was something that died in 1947. No, you know, no. I mean, I've had rocks thrown crap. at me. I've had money thrown at my feet. And yeah. That's like shocking to me. Yeah, I live and in Los Angeles. And all of this took place in Los Angeles to, to boot. I mean, and then people will say like, you know, oh, how can I even complain about this? You know, my great grandma survived Auschwitz. Right, right, right. Like, right, is, right. I'm like, is that the standard? I'm like, like, yay, we're great. We're not in a mass grave. I was like, it was just like really disturbing. And like, the problem is like, I feel, you know, I feel like I've become like this receptacle for all this unarticulated pain. And what's amazing to me is it's unarticulated because, you know, we think of this community as like, oh, we're so navel gazy. Oh, we're so obsessed with, you know, oh, we love talking about anti-Semitism. It's not true is what I've discovered. People like talking about anti-Semitism when it comes from people who don't vote like them. Mm, mm, right. People like right. talking about it when it's violent. Short of that, people don't like to talk about it. Yeah. And people don't like to talk about it because it's humiliating. And that to me is the most interesting thing about this is that the public sort of conversation about this is about the Holocaust or it's about violent incidents. And I mean, the reality is like through most of Jewish history, like anti-Semitism usually doesn't take the form of like, you know, mass murder. It usually takes the force right. of form of humiliation and ostracism. Mm hmm. And, you know, that's something that, like, you know, people are not willing to talk about or it's just, I don't know. It's something it's, it's, I, I don't even sort of know what to do with this, well, you know? I mean, on the plus I, side, I, I also have gotten, like, long letters from people who are like, I'm a recovering anti-Semite. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's, so that's nice. Be a, an oh, experience yeah, unto nice. itself. It sounds like you, you framed this book as something you would hope as being unsettling. It sounds like it's been unsettling to you, but it has actually provided some comfort for us who read it. I, I I didn't realize the scale of the problem. The College Commons podcast is proud to be part of HUC Connect, the Hebrew Union College's online platform for continuing education. HUC Connect features four programs, webinars, live conversations with social and cultural influencers on topics of civil society, arts and culture, religion, and redefining allyship, Community Connect, ready-made lesson plans for synagogue and community learning. The Masterclass, live sessions of Judaica with HUC faculty exclusively for our alumni. Enroll soon because seats are limited. And of course, the College Commons Podcast, in-depth conversations with Judaism's leading thinkers. For more information about HUC Connect and all it has to offer, visit huc.edu slash huc connect. And now back to our program. You write of a dawning realization of the quote mania for dead Jews as something perverse and all the more so when it wears its goodwill on its sleeve, close quote. The goodwill to which you refer 
seems to identify the relationship between anti-Semitism, that is the hatred of Jews, and philo-Semitism, that is the love of Jews, as two sides of the same coin. Am I reading you correctly or not? What do you make of that? You know, when I talk about the mania for dead Jews, that's different. That's a, maybe slightly different than philo-Semitism. Because okay. that's more of the like pious narration that's built into, um, you know, let's say something like what I call, you know, what, what the tourist industry calls Jewish heritage sites, let's say. Right. Which is in the book, I very kind of obnoxiously say like, Jewish heritage sites. It's such an, you know, it's a brilliant marketing term because like it sounds so much nicer than property right. seized from dead or expelled right. Jews, right? Like who wants to go to that? Jewish heritage sites sound so benign. So, you know, philo-Semitism is something a little different because that's something where you're, you're dealing with living Jewish communities, right? I mean, or, or presumably. Um, I'm talking more about like the way that in a sense, people tell stories about dead Jews that make them feel better about themselves and that living Jews are often required to erase themselves in order for those stories to be told. And, you know, this, the example that I opened the book with is this example that you mentioned at the um, start of our conversation about this incident that happened at the Anne Frank house where this, you know, young Jewish man who was working there had to hide his kippah under a baseball hat. And, and oh, and another example that I give in the book from that same museum in Amsterdam is, you know, they've got, 15 languages for their audio guide, you know, and it's got those, that display with the flags where it says mm -hmm. English and there's a British flag and it says Francais and there's a French flag until you get to Hebrew, no flag. I mean, so the museum has corrected this since then, this is from a few years ago, but I, you know, I mean, what I realized in looking at these, these incidents at this particular museum is like, you know, these are, these are PR mishaps, but they're not mistakes. Right. No, definitely. That would not. Yeah. They're not mistake mistakes. Right. Yeah. And, and, the, and, you know, it's like they, you know, they're like, we don't, you know, won't want to disturb anyone visiting this museum with like actual living Jews who are doing right. gross things. Like, I don't know, practicing Judaism or, you know, living in Israel where half the world's Jews live. Like, you know, that's gross. Right. We like, you know, the nice Jews. Like right, the dead right. ones. Which often happen to be in the past where you can't query them as much. I, I actually think that philo-Semitism is, in fact, insofar as you describe the love of dead Jews as conveniently adopting a Jewish story now past to fit your own self-image, I actually think philo-Semitism is exactly that. I was interviewed for this book on some Christian TV station you know, where this, they started the interview with, you know, telling me about how I was one of God's chosen and mm -hmm. this kind of thing. Yeah. And I'm like, honestly, like, you know, I'm okay with that. Like, sure. You know, that's, you know, I like, I didn't think that there was anything, you know, I think a lot of Jews are very suspicious of those kinds of beliefs. Oh, like, yeah. in, at least in this case, these people have like their own religious reasons for being interested in Jewish history. And they're not the same reasons that I have. You know, I feel sort of similarly maybe about something like Holocaust education, the way it's often presented. It's like, you know, is it a bad thing to like learn about the problems with tyrannical regimes? Like, no, that's not a bad thing. Like, I don't know. I mean, I'm not like sort of saying like all these things are horrible or something like that um, or all these things are like, you know, these anti-Semitic enterprises. Like, I'm not making that argument at all. I think that there's a lot. Of, I think there's a lot of room for non-Jewish communities to like understand Jewish history in their own ways. But like, I do think that there is often a self-serving element in that. And that's what I'm examining in the book. 
Well, thank you for the conversation and all of the incredible themes and difficult questions that you've raised. It's really been, if the word pleasure is appropriate, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Daryl. It's the most fun you can have with Dejus. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, thank you, Daryl Horn. Thanks for having me. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the College Commons Podcast, available wherever you listen to your podcasts. And check out HUC Connect, compelling conversations at the forefront of Jewish learning. For more information about all that HUC Connect has to offer, visit huc.edu slash huc connect.